Welcome to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan, and wow, that Gutenberg guy, 1455, he churns out a Bible with movable type, and how would that be described if it were today? Well, we would say that Gutenberg was really rocking the religious content space with a platform of innovation and disruption, putting, putting the whole God brand in front of a whole lot more sticky eyeballs for scripture. <laughs> Pardon my buzzwords, please. But now comes Amazon. And is that perhaps as historic? One-click shopping, e-books, disruptive? Amazon could very well drive traditional publishers and -and brick-and-mortar bookstores completely out of the book space. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, that sounds like the makings of a debate. So let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. Amazon is the reader's friend. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We have four superbly qualified debaters. They are all writers and book lovers, but they are deeply divided on this issue and are arguing two against two over Amazon being the reader's friend. As always, our debate goes in three rounds, and then our live audience here in New York votes to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Let's meet our debaters. Please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage Joe Conrath. Joe, you are uh, an author known for your best-selling thrillers. Uh, You are also one of the leaders and biggest advocates in the field of self-publishing. You did the traditional book publishing route, but your real success, and that means millions of books that you've sold, came after you decided to self-publish with Amazon. How did readers find you? Well, I hope they find me entertaining. (laughs) I, I hope we'll find you entertaining as well tonight. Joe Conrath... Who is your partner? My partner is the wonderful, the drop-dead sexy editor at Vox, Matthew Iglesias. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Matthew Iglesias. Matt, you are also arguing for the motion that Amazon is the reader's friend. You are, as just mentioned, executive director at uh, executive editor at Vox.com. You write a lot about economics and business and politics. You wrote a book called The Rent is Too Damn High. And you come from a family of writers, novelists, in fact. Your father, your grandparents, your brother. Are they on your side in this debate? Well, my, my father happens to be here live, so I, I like to think he's voting strategically and, and sort of rigging the debate in my favor. All right. Well, we're going to have to check on his vote later on. But let's welcome this team to the stage, arguing for the motion. But we have two writers arguing against the motion. Amazon is the reader's friend. First, please, let's welcome Franklin Foer. Author of a book about globalization called How Soccer Explains the World and until recently editor of The New Republic. That's a different debate. We'll have another time. In the October issue of The New Republic, you actually wrote that uh, cover story. And the title you gave that cover story happens to sum up a lot of your feelings about this debate topic. Can you tell the audience what that title was? It might be a touch obtuse for my opponents, but it was called Amazon Must Be Stopped. Subtle. And, and, and your partner is? Well, he's the author of Presumed Innocent, and tonight you should presume him correct, Scott Turow. Ladies and gentlemen, Scott Turow. 
Scott Turow, you are also arguing against the motion that Amazon is the reader's friend. Uh, you're a past president of the Authors Guild and, as mentioned, written a lot of bestsellers a lot of us have heard of, and not just because they've turned into movies, but a lot of them have. You have been criticizing Amazon in the past, particularly uh, in its uh, 2014 um, struggle with Hachette Publishing. Hachette, uh, is, you work for – Hachette, through Grand Central Publishing – has published your books. We just want to get that out there. Uh, but all of this, does this mean that you are not a member of Amazon Prime? <laughs> no, I, I am a member of Amazon Prime, but, <laughs> but I refuse to buy anything from Amazon during the course of the uh, Hachette Amazon uh, brouhaha, and for many years now, and it continues, I refuse to buy books from Amazon. Point of principle. I would call it patriotism. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Scott Turow and the team arguing against the motion that Amazon is the reader's friend. Now, this is a debate. There will be one team winning and one team losing, and that decision is made by our live audience here in New York. By the time the debate has ended, you will have been asked to vote two times, once before the debate and once again after the debate, and the winning team is that whose numbers have changed the most in percentage point terms between the first vote and the second vote. So let's lodge in that first vote. Let's register that first vote. If you go to the keypads at your seat, you'll see that there are numbers one through zero. That makes no sense, one through nine and zero. Um, and you only have to pay attention to one, two, and three. If you agree with the motion, push number one. If you're with this side, push number one, the side that's arguing that Amazon is the reader's friend. If you're against, push number two. And if you're undecided, push number three. You can ignore those other keys. They're not live. And if you made the wrong choice, push the wrong button, just correct yourself, and the system will lock in your last vote. And again, I'll say this one more time and a few more times. It's the team whose numbers have changed the most between now and the end of the debate when you vote the second time that will be declared our winner. Let's move on to round one. Round one, opening statements by each debater in turn. Our motion is this. Amazon is the reader's friend. And here to argue first in support of this motion, Matt Iglesias. He is executive editor of Vox.com. He is author of the book, The Rent is Too Damn High. Ladies and gentlemen, Matt Iglesias. Amazon is the reader's friend. In the long term, obviously, readers are only going to thrive in a world where authors also thrive. And I suspect we're going to spend a lot of time eventually talking about the impact, the long-run impact of Amazon on authors and authorship. And my partner is going to be able to speak to a lot of that in a, in a great deal of detail, more depth than I possibly can. Uh, but, but I write about economics. I'm a pretty literal person, so I'm going to keep it a little bit on the surface level. Amazon is the reader's friend. Uh, and I think you can see that Amazon is the reader's friend by just asking, why are we debating this at all? Why is this a subject of controversy? It's a subject of controversy because Amazon is really big. It's a, it's a big company. It's a powerful company. They have 41% of all books sold. I saw in a, a statistic from last March, and 67% of all digital books. That's, that's big. That's a big power player. It's worth talking about. And it naturally raises the question, you know, how did the company get so big? How do they have so much market share? Why are they so dominant? My argument is they're so dominant in this space because they're the reader's friend. Who buys books? It's readers. Amazon sells books to the vast majority of readers because it's good for readers. 
Another argument, you know, uh, Frank has, has written that Amazon is some kind of a monopoly, some kind of a, an abusive force that's dominating the marketplace, maybe through nefarious means, something like that, some strategy other than being a reader's friend. And I think that that's, that's just not true. This idea that Amazon must be stopped by some kind of external force, it, it doesn't hold up. Because the fact of the matter is, even though Amazon has an extremely large share of the market, it faces a ton of competition. Um, I, I don't know about uh, you guys, but uh, I'm the, the owner of an iPhone. Um, I bet a, a lot of people in the audience, maybe, maybe iPhone users. Yes? No? Yeah? Yeah? <laughs> maybe, maybe some of you have a, a Google, an Android phone, something like that. Yeah? Yeah. So, so people have smartphones. Uh, it turns out these phones, they're directed, uh, they're connected directly to digital stores. Uh, you can go on iBooks on your iPhone. You can go to the Google Play Store on your Android. And you can find uh, How Soccer Explains the World. You can find... Um, Frank edited a book called, called Jewish Jocks that I've been meaning to check out uh, since I was uh, in a debate in San Francisco with uh, his co-editor. And I, I actually I picked it up on my phone on the train. Uh, you can find, I'm not sure if it's every Scott Turow novel, but, but a great deal of them. They're there in the Google store. They're there in the Apple store. These are companies that are competing with Amazon. And they're not like... These are not small, weak, pathetic, helpless uh, uh, companies, right? They're actually bigger than Amazon. Amazon's not going to drive Apple out of business. They're not going to drive Google out of business. What they are doing is beating them badly in the electronic book space. They're selling way more books than those companies. Uh, so how is it that they're doing that? Did they uh, do something sneaky? No. They have a better product, right? You can get uh, Apple, Google on your phone. You get them on your tablet. But it's Amazon who invests in creating the Kindle, which is a, a digital device that's really meant for reading. You know, I, I like to read books sometimes on my iPad. It's fun. But my wife, she's got a, a Kindle Paperwhite, and she loves it. And I've been known to borrow it because it, it really is a better device for reading books on than what these other companies do. Uh, they've also got a superior piece of software. If you download a Kindle book, you can read it on your Kindle, but you can also use a Kindle app on an iPhone, on an Android tablet. You can read it on the web. Uh, Apple and Google, they both want to make more exclusive, more lockdown platforms that don't give you as much flexibility. And, and that's fine. Different companies have different strategies. Uh, but normally in a market, if you were going to offer an inferior product, you would try to beat your competitors on price. But Apple and Google don't do that either. Uh, in fact, Apple tried to team up with book publishers to make prices higher. Um, so it becomes pretty natural. You know, Amazon has this market share because they have a better product, a better product than their digital competitors. And if you compare it to their brick-and-mortar competitors, uh, you know, there's no, uh, there's no competition. It's cheaper to get digital books. It's much more convenient to get digital books. It's much more flexible. You can take them around when you're traveling. Uh, and Amazon also has a store where if you're looking for something, you know, you put it in there. And if it doesn't exist in a digital form, you can order the paper book, right? That's really neat. It's a good convenience because when there's something you want to read, you know, you really want to get the text that you want. You don't care as much about the format. The other digital companies don't do that. All of which is, you know, it's, it's a long way of getting to the point, but it's to say Amazon has won its market share, the best possible way to win market share. It's by doing a better job, offering a better service at a better price. Long story short, they're the reader's friend, you know? 
Uh, so we're debating this in New York City. Uh, New York is a great city. Uh, I know New York very well. I grew up here. I grew up on, uh, on 12th Street and University Place down in the village. And I remember when I was a kid, right in the neighborhood, you know, you could go to Broadway. There was a Shakespeare and Company down maybe on 4th Street. There was uh, Forbidden Planet, which had comic books and specialty sci-fi books. You have The Strand, which is this fantastic used bookstore. We had, I think it was the original outlet of Barnes & Noble over a few blocks further north from there. And, uh, of course, you also have here in New York uh, probably the greatest public library system in the world. This is, like, part of what makes New York an amazing place. But it's important when you're thinking about this issue to not think with these sort of narrow New York blinders on. And to recall that, you know, lots of people live in places that are not as big, places that do not have as many, did not traditionally have as much diversity in terms of book retailing, where you might be talking about a lengthy drive to one bookstore, a limited selection that's there, a library that, you know, maybe had some capacity to get loans from other places. But again, it had its own kind of constraints. What you have in the digital space is this, this vast stockpile. You can get any kind of book you want. You can go get public domain books, download them for free off Amazon. And this is a really like an incredible bounty. I think there's a red herring out there that on one side of this debate is people who love Amazon, and on the other side of the debate are people who think books are an important cultural artifact. Uh, culture matters. Books are crucial to our society, and that's exactly why it is so important that Amazon has made it cheaper, easier, and more convenient for people all around the country and in a growing number of countries to access these crucial cultural artifacts. Uh, books aren't widgets. Books matter. And that's why it's so important that you recognize that Amazon truly is the reader's friend and vote for this resolution. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Matt. Thank And that's our motion. Amazon is the reader's friend. And our next debater will be arguing against it, Scott Turow. Scott Turow is an attorney and author of 12 books including his newest novel, Identical. Ladies and gentlemen, Scott Turow. Well, I listened to to Matt carefully, and I want to begin with a major concession. He is not totally insane. Um, uh, he, He is right, of course, about certain things. Amazon charges low prices. Amazon has built a better mousetrap. Their software is great. Um, but uh, that's really not here what we're, all that we're here to talk about. Uh, the, <clears throat> the question um, isn't whether Jeff Bezos uh, bears some faint resemblance to Lex Luthor. Uh, the, the question is whether uh, Amazon is the reader's friend. And in defining that, or I'd like to be a little lawyerly, I'd like to talk about two things uh, and focus on two words. The first, of course, is readers, because readers are more... Uh, than mere consumers. We uh, agree that books are more than widgets. They bear uh, our culture, thought, knowledge with them. Uh, And as Frank Four uh, is going to talk about when he comes to the podium, Amazon is doing great damage uh, to our literary culture. Um, The second second word, and perhaps one I want to focus on most, is the word friend. Uh, Friend as we commonly understand the term, means uh, somebody you can rely on to treat your interests as equal to to their own. Uh, And instead, what the record demonstrates uh, is that Amazon is nobody's friend but Amazon's. Uh, They are capitalists of a particularly ruthless breed who, in point of fact, 
have habitually turned on their business allies whenever it meets their business needs. And in point of fact, Matt, they are beginning to do this now to readers. Um, Matt concedes that Amazon has a huge market share. Uh, I don't, even sort of waving your hands and saying that, I don't think does full justice to the magnitude of the power Amazon currently exerts. They sell three-fourths of the physical books that get sold in this country online. They sell at least that many e-books, especially when you count uh, the market that's starting to grow, where Joe uh, is, has been so successful, that is to say self-published uh, self authors. Uh, there are parts of the book market that Amazon literally just owns. Uh, they have bought up the two largest producers of audiobooks. Uh, they've bought the biggest seller of used and rare books, of books up sold to the international market, of print-on-demand books, of, of self-published, uh, physical self-published books. And, of course, they've swallowed up sites like Goodreads uh, or BookFinder that might have become competitors to them, another place where, where readers could have bought books. Now, um, to Matt, I have to say that anybody who, will, who believes that Amazon will use this power uh, only in friendship has not read Lord Acton or Machiavelli. Uh, Amazon already pushes books forward uh, on their site at the expense of others for business purposes or worse, for political purposes. And their tactics vary between the ruthless to the underhanded. Um, is Amazon being the reader's friend, Matt, uh, when they alter search results in exchange for promotional payments without acknowledging to their readers that they do that? Uh, or consider the subject you talked about, the chokehold that Amazon got on ebooks with the introduction of the Kindle in 2007. First, uh, and the only innovation in the Kindle, by the way, was not the device, it wasn't e ink. Uh, all, it wasn't digital books, all of those had existed. The innovation was when Amazon convinced the publishers to allow digital books, e-books, to be sold at the same time that hardcovers went on, the sale, went on sale. The publishers agreed, and as soon as they did that, uh, friendly Amazon backstabbed the publishers and began selling e-books at a loss of 3 to $4 a piece on average. Uh, now, people like to say that Amazon sold ebooks at a loss to promote the sale of the Kindle. That, frankly, is baloney. Uh, if you want to promote Kindles, sell them at a loss. Amazon sold ebooks at a loss for two reasons to stifle competition, they wanted to prevent anybody else, competing device makers, places like bookstores, which would have been a great place to buy ebooks. They wanted to prevent them from going into the market in competition with them. They artificially target the second thing they did by selling at a loss is they tilted the market away from physical books, the books published by the publishers who had uh, gone into this business with them, uh, and of course, in the process, put, a, put bi businesses like Borders, not to mention thousands of bookstores, out of business. And this loss selling was not honest free market competition on a level playing field. It was, frankly, a mugging sponsored by Wall Street. For, for 20 years, 
since the company was established, Wall Street has given Amazon unlimited capital, uh, clearly with the expectation that even though the company didn't report a profit sooner or later, they would reap the immense profits that are bound to come from knocking all the competition aside. Then last year, Amazon, uh, Wall Street finally became concerned. When is this company ever going to make a profit? The Amazon share price slid by 25%, uh, and Amazon reacted by squeezing its suppliers, which is to say publishers and authors, and, of course, readers. Uh, this is what led to the dispute between Hachette and Amazon, where Amazon punished not only the company, but also Hachette authors by subverting the sale of Hachette books. Uh, they, they disserved authors like Joe, uh, self-published authors, by starting a subscription series that undercut the income of of authors like Joe, who's admitted that uh, in, in print. Uh, and finally, of course, Amazon started raising book prices. Uh, the company that announced in 2001 it would sell any book over $20 at a 30% discount no longer adheres to that practice. Scott Turow, I'm sorry, your time is up. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. And a reminder of what's going on, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, the moderator, and we have four debaters, two against two, arguing it out over this motion, Amazon is the reader's friend. We have heard from the first two debaters, and now on to the third. Let's please welcome to the lectern Joe Conrath. He is author of the best-selling Jack Daniels thriller series. He has sold over a million e-books through self-publishing. Joe Conrath. Wow, I am, uh, I am so happy to be here, and I'm glad you're all seated after listening to Scott's uh, monologue because he just proved that Amazon is engaging in nefarious acts of capitalism. Uh, I'm smiling right now, seriously. Uh, what, what the heck am I doing on this panel? We've got, we've got two journalists on this panel. Uh, we've got a lawyer on this panel. We've got a lawyer on this panel who did what all lawyers wish they could do. He actually saved an innocent man from death row. He did. All right, okay, that's enough. His head is big enough. Innocent man from death row. Uh, these guys went to Harvard. They went to Stanford. They went to Columbia University. I went to Columbia College. It is uh, not affiliated. I majored in Budweiser. And you think, oh, that's a blow-off major, but I still only got a 2.2 GPA. Or, you know what, that may have been a 2.2 blood alcohol level. I couldn't remember the finals at all, I'm, I'm telling you. But uh, I am very happy to be up here. And I'm going to keep smiling because I really can't believe that I am here. Uh, who, who's seen the movie The Paper Chase? It's about a Harvard Law student working his butt off, taking classes, studying to, to actually become a big lawyer. And Scott actually did that. And when I went to school, I was in my dorm making a sofa out of empty beer cans. So why am I here? I don't know why I'm here. Okay, I've sold some books. Okay, I like Amazon. By a show of hands, how many people here have bought something from Amazon? Okay. 
Let's, let's tell our listeners that that's everybody in the room. That is everybody. That is everybody in the room. By a show of hands, how many people hate raising their hands? That, that's meta. You're going you're gonna to laugh about that later. Let's get on topic here. Uh, Scott brought up publishers. Amazon is the big bad guy, but what about these publishers? Well, you know what? Publishers are the bad guy, and I'm going to tell you why. He said earlier, we need publishers for culture, for rich literary culture. Uh, that's incorrect. Publishers don't write books. Authors write the books. Authors are the ones who impart this rich literary culture. The publishers are just high-priced middlemen. Okay, let's talk about publishers and all of the books they have rejected. Publishers reject hundreds of books for every one that they publish. Now think about that. That's censorship. It really is. There are thousands of books out there that you have never seen because the guardians of culture, those publishers, have never published them. Nine of them were mine. <laughs> I got more than 500 rejections. Yeah, I know. Every time the mailman came, I had to pop a Prozac. <laughs> I eventually did get published after my 10th book, and then I learned more about publishers. I learned that publishers charge too much. Scott's new book, which I'm sure is excellent, the publisher nicely printed the price right on the cover. $28 for a hardcover. Wow, 28 bucks. If you can't afford that and you're a huge Tarot fan, you can wait a year and get the cheaper priced paperback. That's called windowing. That doesn't seem like publishers are really friends to readers. They would give them that paperback earlier because the paperback vastly outsells the hardcover. Publishers give out advances. They give an author an advance. Now, I got a nice advance, according to Publishers Weekly, 30000 bucks, And I was pleased to get it, and I felt I was really lucky because the average advance is $5,000. You're not going to live off $5,000, especially since publishers pay you that over the course of three years. In small payments, twice a year, because publishers only pay twice a year. Word on advances, before I get off that topic, an advance has to be paid back in copies sold, okay? And it's a very high-interest loan. If I self-publish on Amazon, which I have done successfully many times, in fact, since I started self-publishing on Amazon, my income went up 20%. Oh, no, wait, that's wrong. 20. It went up 20 times. So it went up 2,000%. My best year traditionally published, I made 50 grand. Last year I made a million dollars. That's still 50 grand after taxes. <laughs> what it comes down to is publishers are deciding what you read and what you won't read. They decide how you get it and how much you pay for it. And they have that much power because they are a cartel. They are a form of monopoly called an oligopoly. The top five publishers control 80% of all the print books. As a writer, if I want to get into a bookstore, I have to go through those publishers. And they don't have to pay me anything because there are 10 guys behind me who want my spot. Amazon looked at this market and they decided publishers weren't readers' friends. So they innovated. 
They opened the world's biggest bookstore with the best customer service. They invented the ebook reader that everybody wants, along with the app that everybody wants. They gave all authors a chance to reach readers. So my nine books that sat on a shelf finally got out there and reached readers. And I guess readers liked them because I sold a million of them. <laughs> In other words, Amazon looked at all the things publishers were doing wrong, and then they did them right. And rather than try to compete, the publishers colluded and price-fixed to raise prices. We'll talk more about that a little later. This debate is not about Amazon being the writer's friend, though. I can give you examples that they are, but that's not what this is about. It's not about Amazon being the publisher's friend. That's not this debate. It's not about Amazon being a monopoly. That's not the debate. It is about Amazon being the reader's friend. Amazon isn't perfect. No person is. No company is. But let me tell you something. If Amazon right now were building a death machine that was fueled by the screams of puppies, it still wouldn't matter because they are still a friend to readers. Joe Conrath, your time is up. Thank you very much. And our motion is Amazon is the reader's friend. And here to debate against that motion, Frank Four. He is the former editor of The New Republic, author of the book How Soccer Explains the World, an Unlikely Theory of Globalization. Ladies and gentlemen, Frank Four. Oh, I'm feeling real good about the literary future right now. <laughs> Listening to these guys come out here and talk in such fawning, slavish terms about a corporation. Amazon is a company. They are not, in, they're not pursuing the greater good. They're not pursuing uh, cultural greatness. They are a company out to make a bu bunch of money. They have done this extremely well. They produce things at very low prices. They have technologically innovated all over the place. I use Amazon. You use Amazon. And there isn't anything wrong about that. The problem is this. It's that they have done it extremely well. And, 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 and a company can perform at a very high level and in turn obtain a monopoly. They can be the only player. Matt says they aren't a monopoly. But when you control 70% of a market, that historically counts as a monopoly. Um, in the old days, it, before, before the Reagan re Revolution, before the um, Chicago School of Economics trashed antitrust law, our authorities used to get upset when companies controlled 10% of any given market. Not 70%, nearly 70% of any given market. But this is different. This is books. This is about our crown intellectual jewels. This is about the thing that we should care most about in the world because it's about imagination. It's about understanding our past. It's about rooting out people in power. And when you have one company that sits there and is the chokehold for books, that becomes a problem. It may not be a problem just now, but it will become a problem in the future. And it's something that we, as readers, as citizens, as guardians of the book, need to pay incredibly close attention to. Why do I care about this? Well, when I wrote an article about Amazon in the New Republic, what was their immediate response? They yanked ads from the New Republic. When they were having their dispute with Hachette, the publishing company, 
What did they do? Well, they punished the guy who wrote the book about the Koch brothers, but they let Paul Ryan's book go unscathed. They didn't punish him, them. When a company has that chokehold, when they can decide who wins and who loses in the publishing game, we need to be very, very afraid as citizens. So what is Amazon? Amazon is the everything store. Their ambitions are boundless. They name themselves after the largest river in the world. They're making Woody Allen movies, television shows now. They're selling you your underwear, your socks. They want everything. They want nothing else to be able to breathe on this planet except for their consumers and the people who make their goods. And so that's a very, very dangerous thing. And we've seen this with publishing. We've seen the way that they've treated book publishers to date. It's not the worst offenses in the world. They're trying to lever, but, but it's bad and it, and it portends bad things. They've thrown around their power in order to try to continually squeeze the publishers. Now, I want to just say something in defense of publishers, because they've been trashed considerably tonight, and I have a feeling that a lot of this debate will come down to a referendum on book publishing. Yeah, book publishers suck. (laughs) They're, They're an oligopoly. They're five big publishers. They're not great. But there are going to be a lot less of them because when, pe- when companies see one big powerful player who controls their market, their natural instinct is to huddle together in safety and to cower. And that's what's happening now. Penguin merges with Random House. Hachette tries to buy Perseus. And that's going to continue in the face of Amazon. And that's going to continue to just squeeze the diversity out of our intellectual space. Now, what publishers don't do a great job always of picking books, although you, when you look at the shelves in your library, you have to say Norman Mailer, Philip Roth, Zadie Smith, that they've done a pretty good job of picking winners in the past. But that process of picking winners is incredibly important. If you go to Amazon's self-publishing page and you look at the self-published authors, there are thousands of them. And I have no idea which one of them to read. I am too lazy as a reader. I don't have enough time to go read the the first chapters of all these books in order to determine what's good. I look to publishers to see that somebody other than the author's mother thinks that the book is worth reading. So they play an important role in sifting through the market. Which is, which is one great thing that they do. The second thing that they do is that they help authors who are usually introverts and nerds and very bad at self-promotion break through in the world. And, you know, they don't, they didn't do that for Joe Conrath. Well, you know, shame on them. But they do a good job of that for, for many, many, many other authors. Now, the most important thing that, th- that they do, and, and Joe is talking about fiction, which is fine. I, I think it's a different market than nonfiction. Nonfiction books often involve Deep reporting, many trips to the archives, they're very, very expensive to produce. You can't just sit up one day and say, I'm going to go write a biography of Virginia Woolf. That's expensive. You've got to go travel to England. You've got to, you've got to uh, photocopy things. Um, and, um, you, you, you know, it, 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 and, and the way that you are able to finance a project like that is by an advance. They are Kickstarter for authors. They pay authors 
uh, a little bit of money at, at the beginning of a project, which enables them to compete uh, to complete that. And I, I could be wrong here, but I can't even. I, I, I was trying to think if I could think of any self-published nonfiction books that have been successful, any great biographies or histories, and I couldn't do that. And that stuff is going to suffer in this new world. And so I think in this debate, you are readers. You are the defenders of the book. The presumption here should be that anything that is distantly threatening to the book is something that you should be very, very concerned about. Anything that threatens this wonderful intellectual ecosystem that we have, which is already imperiled in so many different ways, shapes, and forms, needs defenders. It's, it's your obligation here to step up, to send a message to Amazon, and to defend the book. Thank you. Thank you, Franklin Four. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is, Amazon is the reader's friend. I'll be right back after this message. Now on to round two. Round two is where... I need you to not chuckle during this. I know, I invited that. Let's start with a round of applause. That'll get it out. Welcome back to this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. Our motion is Amazon is the reader's friend. We move now on to round two. Round two is where the debaters address one another directly and take questions from me and you, from, from you, our live audience here in New York City. We have two teams debating this motion. Amazon is the reader's friend. We've heard one team, Joe Conrath and Matt Iglesias, argue for the motion. They're saying that Amazon is the reader's friend and that this is blatantly obvious because readers are flocking to Amazon. It's a company that gets more books to more people in more places than any other company in history. They, they are publishing writers who could not get through the door at a lot of traditional publishers. They represent it as a kind of a freedom from publisher tyranny. Um, and they basically say the bottom line is that a Amazon makes uh, a better progress and that the traditional publishers in this story are the bad guys. The team arguing against the motion, Franklin Four and Scott Garreau, they're saying it's all a trap. Um, Amazon is more than halfway on its way to controlling everything in publishing, that Amazon is only Amazon's friend, uh, and that there will be a problem down the road when its chokehold is complete, that this is a company that cares as much about books as it does about socks and blenders. And more than that, that the company uh, plays dirty. It may be capitalism, but they're playing by rules that are going to harm uh, writers and harm books and therefore harming readers and therefore can't be the reader's friend. I want to go to um, the team that is arguing against the motion and put to you basically the, the frontline argument your opponents are saying, as I just stated, the, the front, their frontline argument is that readers are flocking to Amazon. And all by itself, that answers this question. They're the reader's friend because readers love it and they're feeling loved. Uh, Frank Four. So one of the things, the world of the Internet is a deceptive one. It looks like it's wide open until it's not. But the people who arrive first and establish advantages in that world are the ones who win and win in a major way. It's what happened with Google. It's what happened with Facebook. It's what happened with Amazon. They were able to get there first and then build distribution systems, technology that's very, very hard for other companies to come in and compete with. And so the fact that they've, 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 they've 
actually produced this product that in some ways is genius for consumers, it's understandable that, that consumers would, would, would flock there. But it also helps explain why they've achieved so much market share. It's very, very hard for anybody to get into this market and compete with them. And the fact that they are the everything store and the fact that when we, we do go there, we're, we're also buying movies and, um, and, 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 and um, clothing and food and everything, it just becomes a, you know, a matter of convenience for people to buy, buy books there. Let's let Matt Iglesias respond to that. So I think it's just false that Amazon is impossible for new startups to compete with. I think I bought these glasses at Warby Parker, which is an online glasses store. I got this suit from Alton Lane, which sells men's clothing online. I actually did get my socks at Amazon. Uh, but you see, I mean, venture capitalists in Silicon Valley are, in fact, willing to back online retail competitors to Amazon because they don't think it has the same kind of network effects as a Google or Facebook. And you also see, I mean, I said this in my original point, but I, and I haven't heard Hard to address, but ebooks are sold by companies that are not Amazon, by well financed companies called Google and called Apple. Amazon has market share vis-a-vis those companies, not because of a nefarious power, but because Google and Apple have not brought forth a better product at a better price. And that's, that's unfortunate. I mean, I wish that they cared as much about the book market, but it restrains Amazon's ability to raise prices or squeeze consumers so, or do any of these so other terrible things. So you're saying that it's, that it's not true, that, that it's inevitable that Amazon will control everything. Exactly. I want to take that to Scott Terrell. Well, I, I, the, the problem with Apple and Google as competitors is that they don't sell physical books. And there's nothing wrong with the Apple software in the iBook store. Uh, It works as well uh, as Amazon's. I wouldn't say the same thing about Barnes & Noble. But the problem is it's not a book site. Uh, There aren't physical books there. They're not a full or a real competitor with Amazon in that sense. Uh, And they got into the e-book market uh, because they were unwilling to fully concede the space to Amazon, which is what happens between these big four companies, you know, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple. Uh, they nibble at each other's markets, but they're not there for real. Joe Conrad. Well, <laughs> when did it become necessary for a company to boy up its competition? I mean, aren't companies supposed to try to beat the competition? Isn't that the point? Can you imagine the CEO of Coca-Cola calling his board meeting, well, we're really kicking Pepsi's butt, uh, and, you know, we want to foster competition, so what we're going to do is we are going to send out teams to beat up everybody who is drinking a Coca-Cola. in fairness, your opponents are not saying that Amazon should boy up the competition. They're saying Amazon is so successful that the competition will disappear, and that would be a bad thing. And what company does not try to compete and gain as much market share as possible? But as they put, you don't, you've argued against oligopoly. They're saying that your, your alternative in oligopoly is a monopoly. Well, well look, Scott, so, so Scott far. just said otherwise. He correctly pointed out that Apple was not originally in the book market. They didn't care as much about books as Amazon did. They, but they, they saw ultimate. that Amazon was taking over. They wanted to move in. This is, again, I mean, this is not like a small mom-and-pop operation Apple is running. They came in, like, in a big way. They haven't gained much market share because their product is not quite as good. But if Amazon did any of these horrible things, or if book publishers 
had any confidence in their own ability to market authors around Amazon and say, hey, we got this amazing Scott Turow book. Why don't you find it on our hugely popular internet store? You know, like, uh, they, they could sell them to those people, like okay. big yeah, e-retailers. Fra- Frank, okay. Frank Four. That's wishful thinking. I mean, it's wishful to imagine that, you know, Penguin Random House is going to recreate um, e-commerce. Amazon invented e-commerce, and they did it very successfully. The problem isn't that they've done it successfully and, and owned the market. The problem is that they use their size to treat the, the, peop- the, the whole economy very badly. Um, and there, there are some good examples of this. I mean, they, they have an ideological... They, they don't just want to uh, uh, beat the publishers. They want to uh, do business with the publishers and get the most favorable rates from them. They want to destroy them. They call them antediluvian losers with rotary telephones. They conceived a project called... Yeah, but they kind of there, 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 there was a project called the Gazelle Project. <laughs> you know, they're antediluvian losers, and, and, and you know what? God bless them. The reason that they... Their commitment to, to things other than profit. Yes, they are obsessed with profit, but they're also, they also publish poetry and they publish histories and they publish other things that don't make conventional sense on a balance sheet because they view their mission as to make money, but also to create and to sustain a book culture. Amazon referred to they, they tried to kill the small publishers in something called the Gazelle Project, where they wanted to negotiate with them in a way where they said that the, the small publishers were sickly gazelle and they would pounce on them like a cheetah. Um, it, All right, it, let's, it, let's let uh, the, the defender of the gazelle killer respond. I, uh, <laughs> Joe Conrad. A gazelle to everybody who votes for yeah. Okay. Uh, Talking about the your, your last question, monopolies versus the oligopoly, and why why do I against the uh, the oligopoly? Uh, the oligopoly uh, wants less choice and higher prices. The monopoly wants more choices and really low prices. And what is the topic of this debate? It's Amazon, the friend to readers. Well, what do you want? Higher prices, less choices, lower prices, more choices. Scott it's pretty Trump. simple. Well, Joe, Joe, first of all, the, the monopoly sells the products, that is, books, made by the oligopoly. So, no, they're made by authors, so, Scott. But, the, but the, problem, the problem is that the monopoly wants to put the oligopoly out of business. So? Publishers are of no benefit to Amazon, and they are doing their best to slowly squeeze them to death. And, and that bothers what, you because you've made a lot of money with these Publishers, and I understand and it that because you, you haven't. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm, yeah, not, I'm not sure you're going to want to go down that road for me, Joe. Frank, I'm not speaking for me. I'm speaking for the Let's go ahead before and finish this point. Joe, I, there are there are books that cannot be written in the Amazon self-publishing model. Nonfiction that Frank talked about takes years to write, and it does require the support and investment of a publisher. Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch, a wonderful novel. You and I talked about that on the radio this morning. It took 10 years to write, and it has to have the patronage of a company that believes in her talent. She can't do that on her own. And Yes, genre fiction has been very successful, and there are some wonderful writers who have come to light because of that. But you, you are truly throwing the baby out with the bathwater if you let Amazon kill, kill the publishing system that has nurtured our literary culture. Okay, well, 
Joe Conner. Well, you know what? I've listened to you guys, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back off on my stance for a little bit. You, you made a point. Uh, advances for works of nonfiction that take a long time, uh, we should support these. And, and publishers have, in the past, supported these. But you're conflating two things here, Scott. It's a fallacy. Just because that's the way things were always done doesn't mean it's the way it should be done forever. Franklin said something great. Only one thing, but he said something great. He said, you know what advances are like? Advances are like Kickstarter for authors. You know what's great about that? You know what's better than an advance that takes 52.5% of your money? How about Kickstarter? (laughs) Joe. Joe. You know, uh, there there was a study study done out of Queens College about the... uh, median income of self-published authors, and it was uh, found to be under $5,000. And nearly uh, nearly 20% of self-published authors reported deriving no income from their writing. And it says uh, she found that only 1.8% of published, uh, self-published authors last year uh, made over $100,000 uh, from their writing. That's not enough to sustain a living. You're, you are not comparing equals. It's you know like, I, oh, I, I, I have I, a choice. I, I want to bring Matt back into this conversation. Right. Please. <laughs> Matt Iglesias. So, you know, advances is like a super important subject here. And, and here's the fact of the matter. You have to understand, book publishers, the, the big ones that we're talking about that are here, these are commercial enterprises. They're subsidiaries of big, multinational, for-profit companies. Uh, they don't offer these advances, like, because they're careless and just throwing money around like, like drunk morons. And, and they don't do it as an act of charity. I mean, there is, in fact, philanthropic support for certain kinds of nonprofit work. I mean, lots of important nonfiction books are written by professors at universities, et cetera, et cetera. But book publishers pay advances because it's part of their business model. Because as you say, it's required to get the book written. And so the question is, is that either makes financial sense or it doesn't, right? Giving people the advance in exchange for a cut of their sales is either a profitable business to be in, in which case people will continue to do it in the future, or else it's not a profitable business to be in, in which case it's going to go away regardless of what happens with e-books and and whatever else like that. So I think it's a total red herring. And I think, again, to, to focus this on the question of, you know, no one is denying that Amazon is not the book publisher's friend, but is it the reader's friend? Right? They're squeezing these publishers, but they're doing it, they're trying to sell books. You sell books to readers. And you sell books to readers by making books affordable and by making them accessible. That's what Amazon is doing. That's what makes Amazon the reader's friend. And if you care about books, pound the table, culture, yes. Culture is great. That's why it's great to make books more affordable and more accessible. Okay, there's a presumption that's been made in the side arguing in favor of this motion that traditional legacy publishing is a tyranny. And I want to I focus on that point with a technique we're introducing tonight, uh, a 30-second rebuttal round. Um, we just want to like focus in specifically on this point of whether or not it's a tyranny, and that's why I have with me this special bell. <laughs> it's going to go like this: you get 30 seconds, one of you, 30 seconds back, 30 seconds back, and 30 seconds back, just to discuss this one topic without changing the subject, or you lose your time about whether or not traditional publishing actually functions as a tyranny. Which of you would like to go first? Uh, I'll be happy Scott to talk Tarot, about okay, it. Okay, your 30 seconds. If, if, uh, we'll if, end like this, and your 30 seconds start now. Right now, and it's a great thing, there are alternatives for the publishers, for the, for the authors whom those publishers 
uh, reject. And that's the self-publication route. Works for some, and that is a great thing. Doesn't work for most, but it's still great that it works for some. The problem is that the company that, that Joe champions Amazon wants to put the publishers out of business. They have no interest whatsoever in letting the publishers survive. It's good for them if they're gone. Joe Conrad. Your 30 seconds starts now. Okay. Um, We don't need publishers. They are middlemen. They were once essential because they were the only way you could get your book into bookstores. They were the only way to connect an author and a reader. Now we do not need them. We can reach readers, and I can reach more readers through Amazon than I could with the 10-something publishers, all of which were big publishers, that I worked for. And it's not equal. It's not like you can choose to self-publish or legacy publish, because legacy publish makes you jump through. Frank Ford. Here's why we're going to win this debate. These are the Manichaean guys. They say self-published authors should win and the traditional publishing houses should lose. We are the men of peace. We believe that there's no reason that you can't have a world where there are self-published authors working through Amazon and traditional publishing houses. That provides pluralism, diversity, a very rich culture. Why can't we go there? Because you guys have, it seems like, a little bit of a chip on your shoulder about the publishing houses, as does Amazon. Matt Iglesias. want to destroy them. Matt Iglesias, and the, the question, which has still not been answered, is why is publishing traditionally a tyranny? Traditional book publishers are much too incompetent to be a tyranny. <laughs> I, I agree with Frank. In principle, there's no reason why there can't be coexistence. And if you look at the movie industry uh, or the music industry, you see competing digital retailers and you see publishers of these things. And that's because movie studios are good at marketing movies. So they do not need to fear any one distribution platform because they will sell their movies through other ones. But publishers are bad at their job of marketing books. That's why they're afraid of Amazon. The side that's arguing for the motion, in a moment I want to come to audience questions. And I will say this in advance, I won't be able to accept all questions if they're off point. I apologize in advance for saying no to certain questions, which I will do respectfully, and there's no shame in being turned down. But try to keep your question on the point of this topic, this motion, move it forward. Be terse, don't argue with the debaters, and really make it in the form of a question. What will happen is you'll raise your hands, and I'll, have, uh, I'll call on you, and a mic will come. And if you're a member of the, uh, uh, particularly the news media, or actually if you're even in the business, we'd love to know that, if you're willing to share, and we'd also like to know your name. Before we get to that, I just want to put one more question to the side arguing for the motion and then hear the response. Your opponents are saying that your opponents are saying that Amazon cannot be trusted, that it's becoming more and more powerful, and that and that's probably likely to continue, although you're saying there are mitigating forces. But they're saying that with the power it already has, it has already demonstrated that it cannot be trusted to do the right thing. Joe Conrad, do you tr- do you trust Amazon? Well, okay. I am less worried about the tiger that's going to eat me next month, and I'm more concerned about the lion that is chewing on my leg right now. The lion chewing on my leg is legacy publishing. Scott Terrell. Joe has managed to succeed outside that system. I don't understand how legacy publishing is doing anything to hurt you, Joe. The problem is you are in bed with the devil. Because Am- <laughs> And the devil is good, Scott. And the devil is good and bad. 
Because you don't, you have no, no matter how popular you are, you have no control over Amazon. And Amazon has no interest in letting legacy publishers survive. Scott, I don't have a contract with Amazon. I can leave Amazon whenever I want to. You have a contract with Hachette. You once called Amazon the Darth Vader of the publishing industry. Why are your books still on Amazon? You're like profiting from selling the evil empire tie Because they're a monopoly. You can't avoid them. <laughs> I mean, oh, is, oh, is that it? So, so you could take a strong stance against something, but then profit off of it? What's that word? What's the word for that? I, I don't, you can apply what, whatever word you want to, but wh where else am I supposed to go? Where else are you going to go, Joe? Joe, the, you, know, you shook your head and denied something that I have seen you admit in print. For all your stout defense of Amazon, they introduced Kindle Unlimited, and that cut your earnings. And no, it did what? it to many, many self-published authors. That's not what I said. You, you're misquoting me, or you misread me, or you misunderstood me. I don't make any decisions unless I have information. They introduced, Amazon introduced something called Kindle Unlimited. For $10 a month, you can get unlimited books. Read as many as you want to. I know that sounds for terrible. For, it does sound terrible for readers, doesn't it? My books were in that program. I now have data of what it's like to be in that program. Now I'm going to take them out of that program because I control my books, and I'm going to check to see how the data aligns. And if I don't like it, I will leave. And was that a fair thing to do to you and the other self-published authors? As opposed to you who has no power of where your books are put? Medaglasius, let me, let me bring back to you the question of whether you trust Amazon to do the right thing uh, given its power. Do you, are, you, are you good with them? You know, let me just quote uh, my opponent, Frank Four, uh, on Amazon. He said, they want nothing else to breathe on this planet except their consumers, which is to say their readers. Uh, you know, I wear some different hats. I'm an editor at a website. I've written books. But as a reader, I absolutely trust Amazon, not because I have some crazy blind faith in them, but because their business model so you're, is getting more people. But your, your opponents are talking about a world in which they will just be able to raise prices because they control everything, and it just won't well, be as, that. As I've been trying to say, like, that is a made-up world okay. in which you're wishing away Apple and Google. But, but wait, let me just, let me just read a quote from... Uh, a respected author named Matthew Iglesias, uh, which uh, comes from an article you wrote in Slate where you describe um, Amazon as awesome. Um, you said, if you own a competing firm, you should be terrified. Competition is always scary, but competition against a juggernaut that seems to have permission from its shareholders to not turn any profit is really frightening. Yes, Matt Iglesias, yes. Amazon is definitely not a friend. To competing bookstores. I mean, you, you, that article is all about the benefits, the many benefits that Amazon has brought to consumers through its relentless competitive spirit. Let's go to some questions. And again, I, I implore you that if you have an interest in this, let us know about it, because we're probably going to be able to tell anyway. Um, <laughs> right up there. And the mic is coming down here uh, behind you, and if you could stand up and again tell us your name. Hold the mic about as far away from your mouth as this mic is from mine as well, so we can hear you clearly. Thanks. Uh, greetings. Uh, I will admit I'm a literary agent, so I'm one of the first gatekeepers that, that uh, writers have to go through. And my question is, what kind of readers are we talking about? Because the books that come in to me are really unedited. I do what I can, then I find the right publisher, they edit them. So I think readers benefit from books that are edited 
by publishers, and we haven't talked about the editorial process okay. and what the publishers bring to I'm that. I'm going to put that question to the side arguing for the motion because it sounds like more of a challenge to them. Uh, do you want to take that? Editing is fantastic. I mean, I'm, I'm an editor in my, in my day job uh, at, a, at a website. You're um, a gatekeeper. I, I am. I, I, I keep the gates of what articles go up on the site, and I'm also a writer, and I feel like my writing has always been improved by editing. Uh, but you can see when you look, I mean, the world of writing is much bigger than the world of book publishing, and there's lots of different ways in which editing gets done between the final publication of something and the, the initial conception of it. Uh, and so I think, you know, when editors are adding value to writers and to readers, which I think they often are, you know, there are ways to make that happen. I think the particular way that editing of books happens, that the sequence from the writer to the agent to the publisher to the editor who works for the publisher, you know, that is being severely challenged by the current dynamic. But anyone who really cares about making their writing better, you know, finds ways to work with editors. And that happens in newspapers. It happens in magazines. It happens right. in websites. And so it'll continue Stuttero, to happen. Matt, Matt is saying that it you don't need to have a you know a, a, a big five editor editing your book in order to get edited. I well, I don't know where else it's going to come from unless the model that Joe uh, believes in is one where uh, the self-published author goes out and hires his own marketing advice if he's not a marketer himself, his own editor if he's not uh, if he's not his own editor, which is not a good idea I think ever. It's like being your own lawyer. Um, so, uh, and, and I don't know where these authors who are just starting out are going to get that editorial advice, uh, where they're going to get the bankroll uh, to, to finance the well, marketing Joe, and the editorial. Joe, you live it. I mean, who edits for you? you I, I, I love editors, and um, I, have, I have several editors, and they're easy to find. Uh, there's a, a whole group in this, in this country called freelancers. And they actually will do editing for a set fee. And that set fee is nice. It's sunk costs. It's not you paying forever. When you are edited by one of the big five, they own that book for your lifetime plus 70 years. That editor who spent two weeks on a book that it took you two years to write gets paid for that long. I'd rather pay a freelancer sunk costs and then keep the money from that point on. Frank Ford, what's wrong with that argument? So freelance editors are, you know, th their life with the project is, uh, you said, two weeks or something. Um, they're not fully invested in the success of a project. When a publisher edits a book, they're invested in its success. They have very, very strong incentives for excellence. A freelancer, you know, some person you find on the Internet, uh, you know, to, to come punch up your book isn't going to be fully invested in its excellence. That's all right. That, I, I get that point. I want to take it back to you, so it's very uh, Managlazia. It's a very persuasive point. Uh, well, so you know, listen. Future business models, that's tough. Uh, you know, I, I could be a, like a book visionary, but I'm not. I'm just a, just an editor on a website. Um, but uh, the fact of the matter is you can imagine lots of different ways this works, right? You can imagine companies that just don't happen to be the existing big five publishing companies doing a similar sort of service where they look at drafts, and when they find drafts that they think are promising, they agree to edit them, work on them, and improve them in exchange for a percentage of the sales. That's not like a crazy business to be in. The book 
publishing business has worked along that kind of model for a long time. It often is the case when technologies change that the particular incumbent companies lose out, but something sort of similar takes its place. I think that you've seen in the journalism world that I'm in, right, that some old companies have struggled, some old companies have thrived, some new companies have come out, but the stuff that's really valuable in terms of like writing, reporting, editing, that still happens at all different kinds of places. And I think you'll see the same thing in publishing. The, so qual- the quality of editing on the internet, though, has diminished significantly. I mean, and, and, and it's, you know, editing is not just a business, it's a craft. It's something that you have to practice with devotion, just like writing is. And, um, you know, in order to get the quality of editors that you'd want, in order to really significantly improve things, you need people who are committed to craft. And the worst thing is if writers are going to perceive editing as just kind of an unnecessary expense, because no writer really truly believes that they need to be edited. And, and, and writers, are, writers are the people in the world who are least able to see the flaws in their own work. So, Joe Conrath, it, it sounds as though Matt Iglesias is, 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 I don't want to say conceding, but is acknowledging that there are some services that legacy publishers do deliver, such as editing, that have a value, but that the framework in which they exist is, is, is the killer for you. Well, everything has a value, but value also has a cost. And the cost for a legacy editor is, in my opinion, too high. In, in, some, in some instances, it may not be too high. I had a great publisher at Hyperion for my first six books. Her name was Leslie Wells. Uh, she was great. And now she was fired. So I can hire Leslie Wells whenever I want to, and she just appeared on my blog talking about her new book, which she self-published. And is she editing it herself? No, she's going to get an editor. Another question, please. Right in the center here, you're wearing an orange shirt. Again, if you've got skin in the game, let us know. Thank you very much. Can you hear me? Yes, very clearly. Uh, Jim Corsi, avid reader and uh, member of the Unwashed Masses. Uh, This is for the against group. Information by itself wants to be free. And throughout human history... That is, is, I'm sorry. Uh, There is nothing else in this society that is supposed to be free. Speech? To to say information is free... To say information wants to be free... I'm going to ask you to let the guy get the question. Okay. (laughs) John, I disagree with the premise. You can come back to that. But but I really want to see what happens when he gets to the question mark. (laughs) Throughout human history, disruptive technologies have brought information to us in a variety of different ways, from the creation of written language to the Gutenberg Bible to the creation of competitive press to electronic uh, publishing and ebooks. And my question to you is why are you so afraid of the latest revolution in allowing us to have access to information why do you say in the way that we want? Why do you say they're afraid? Why do you portray their argument as one based on fear? Because they're providing us with a view that there has to be uh, a set of, I don't want to use the term oligarchy, but there have to be curators for the information that we're allowed to access and consume so we know which one is the good and which one is the not good. It's about the judgment process that you're questioning. All right, let's take it to uh, to Scott. You you were interrupted. uh, First of all, I, I... 
My differing with the people who say information wants to be free are the people who want to devalue copyright and, and, and indeed even do away with it. And I think if you do that, you will not have authors, you will not have books, and you are doing no service to readers. And I, I'm, I'm not sure, though, that you're listening carefully to what Frank and I have been saying. I am not against Joe self-publishing his books. I am happy that that is happening. I believe the more voices, the better. I'm not, so I'm not against that. The problem is that the company that Joe works with wants to do away with the other model. And that is, I believe, overall an immense threat to our culture. Let's take another question. Has the number of books read by the number of people, has book readership in general increased since Amazon has become so powerful? In other words, not just their slice of the pie, but have they grown the pie? Have they contributed to that? And if so, what does that indicate about their friendliness? Nicely done. Uh, Joe Conrad. I've got a friend named Hugh Howie whose uh, who's sales just completely blow mine away. And Hugh and an unnamed data guy who I, I happen to know who really knows his stuff started a, a website called authorearnings.com. And what they're showing is, yeah, the pie is growing. Traditional publishers don't see the pie growing. Their part of the pie is staying the same. But for the rest of us, the pie is getting bigger. Would you like to respond on this side? Well, here, here's the, the, the one problem with that. Um, Amazon doesn't re release sales figures. So we have no idea whether Hugh Howey, who, of course, is a champion for his own cause, is accurate. His data guy is totally unnamed. There's no backing up All of the sources. All the data sources. is there. Scott, we, you can check it. Anybody can check it. He, they, they list everything, and their math is solid. Scott, Joe, it could source. be a work of fiction. Nobody knows where those numbers came they from. They take screenshots of Amazon. That's where they're coming from. We're in the middle of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, second round. I have to do this little bit. Hang on one second. Our motion is this, Amazon is the reader's friend. This is a debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We have two teams of two debating for and against. Joe Conrath and Matt Iglesias arguing for, Frank for, and Scott Turow arguing against. We're taking questions from the audience right down the front here. Hi, um, I'm Sadie. Uh, Hi, Sadie. Uh, my question is directed mostly towards the opposition, particularly towards Scott, because he's a published novelist. Um, full disclosure, I work, I volunteer at a writing outreach nonprofit based in my hometown called Project Right Now. Um, I'm wondering what you think about, do you think that if Amazon really does become this, this um, monopoly that you fear it will be or fear it already is, do you think the quality of books that are getting out there and getting popular are going to decrease? Uh, the, sh the short answer is um, yes, and it's, but it, it's for complicated reasons. Um, what I worry about is that um, most authors can't afford to be self-published authors. They can't spend years and years working on their books. They can't First-time author has no money to hire an editor uh, or a marketing guru. Uh, and so the temptation and what happens with most of the self-published authors is that they produce book after book, sometimes several in one year. Now, 
I will tell you, Trollope and Dickens wrote at that pace. Uh, Steve King writes a lot of books. So it's not, I'm not saying it's all bad, but I am telling you that the odds are that most people aren't Trollope and Dickens. And so, yes, that system, I think, will produce uh, works of lower quality and, and less thoughtful works. Matt Iglesias? I, I think that Scott is, is skipping a lot of logical steps when he gets to the story. What he is actually describing is not a world in which Amazon has ruined literary culture. He's describing the fear, a fear that I think a lot of people share, and not totally unreasonably, that readers, that, that maybe the world actually just doesn't like want to pay for great literature. And I think that's like that's an interesting question, right? I mean maybe like Netflix will destroy literary culture. And but that's not what we're debating here, right? I think in a world where there are people, talented authors with great books that they want to write and that there are readers who want to get their hands on great books, there is just no way that Amazon, as a retail layer in the middle, is somehow preventing that from happening. There are plenty of ways that you could put books up for sale that don't involve Amazon. There's no sign that Amazon has some like objection to great books being sold on its platform. Amazon is trying to sell as much stuff to as many people as they possibly can. And there's a, these other sort of questions, big questions about the future of books are very important. But we have to understand that like Amazon's commitment to serving readers and to serving the book market in a digital world is part of what helps books stay viable in a world where they face competition from all kinds of other entertainment. Let me see if the other side wants to respond. Uh, you know what? Amazon, Amazon isn't just a search engine. It's not just a place you can go in and look for whatever book that you're interested in. Amazon has a homepage, a very powerful homepage, that drives traffic to books. They, decide, they pick winners and they pick losers. And they have tremendous power to do but that given the size. Don't, don't the publishing houses do exactly the they, same they, thing? They, they do. But the problem is, is that we're imagining a world where you have one. I mean, this is this is the the, the nightmare scenario where we're, which we're on the road towards, where you have one company that is the arbiter of all things literary, all things book, and they and, and they, okay. they they set the standards and they make the choices, and it's not a neutral playing field where we all me, have a let chance. Let me take that point to the other side, because Matt Iglesias is arguing it's not going to happen because there's Google and Apple. But as a theoretical thing, if you guys don't mind playing with the hypothetical, um, Joe Conrath, if, if uh, Amazon ultimately became fully a monopoly, had no competition, would that be a nightmare scenario that Amazon was alone and able to, dis- to pick the winners and losers? They're not picking anything. They're just allowing anybody who has an idea to have the no, opportunity I'm talking, I'm talking about to reach what, I'm talking about the ranking he was just talking about on the home page. They, they pick which ones to put on the home page and which not Well, it's to. their that, company. They can do what they want to with that their a, company. I know they can. Is it a good I, I thing? I would love to have my books well, available on Scott's site. But He's not going to put I know my they books can. Their, their point isn't that they it's can or can't. Their point isn't that they can or can't. Their point is that it would be a bad thing. And I just want to see if you think that would be a bad thing or not. Well, hypothetically, I think a lot of bad things can happen, but I don't see that happening right now. I've, I've talked with Amazon about changing algorithms. I haven't heard anything that anybody admit that, yeah, we're futzing with this and we're futzing with that. Now, they're notoriously tight-lipped about anything. What are they going to tell me for? But how do we automatically jump to, wait a second, Amazon is doing something shifty here. But it, it, it is shifty. Uh, and let Great me tell point. you why. Um, right now, when you type in, um, you type in uh, uh, pol- police 
police, uh, n- police noir novels into their search engine, you get a series of results. How do you think that series of results is ranked? It's some a publisher has paid for one of the top ranks there. So, th- so that's, do, do that's why. And, but that's but they're not they're not they're not uh, they're not letting consumers into that in in a uh, that, you know with full awareness of the ranking that's actually happening there. They're they're posturing as if it is some it, it's like Google. You think right? Amazon invented that? That's called co-op. That's why when you go into a Barnes and Noble. You see 400 Scott it's, Perot it's, books it, stacked it is, up in front, no, no. and you see my one book out in section. But it's different. It's different if you have one big player picking the winners and losers, and that's that's the point you guys haven't really addressed here tonight, which is that we're you know we're they they already have 67 yeah. percent of the ebook. Market. I mean, just as just as the referee of the debate, I agree that you haven't addressed it. Now, you've, you've, you've refuted it as, why should I deal with it? Because it's not going to happen, Matt. And, and, and uh, Joe, you're refuting it as, I can't talk about hypotheticals. Fair enough that that's your response to their hypothetical that you, you just don't think it's worth dealing with. Well, but I, I want to give you one I mean, more. Th- let me try to respond to it as clearly as possible. Okay. If their argument is that in a counterfactual world in which no other websites existed, that then in that world Amazon would be a threat to literature and to readers – That's true, but it also tells you that in the actual world, where there are lots of other websites, it isn't the kind of threat they pose. That to generate this threat, they have to assume a crazy series of subsequent events to take us from here to this dystopia. You think think we're we're, we're far, far away from that happening is what you're saying? There's no possible way it could happen. Can I ask just a brief question, Joe? What percentage of your sales take place on the Amazon platform? When are we talking these sales? In the past, maybe 70%. Recently, 95%. Now I'm scaling back on Amazon because I'm going to test some things out with some other platforms, see what they're doing. It changes. It fluctuates. The industry is in flux right now. Well, 95%, Matt, doesn't sound like the other websites are doing very well to me. I'm not on the other website. Wait a minute. Let's not go to a question, please. Um, I'm Jeremy Greenfield. I've written about this topic for a long time, and I actually uh, conceived of and authored and edited the original versions of the, the study that uh, Frank mentioned. Uh, my question is also about a uh, different kind of reader. Um, the reader who lives in a rural area, who doesn't have access to a, a large literary culture, the reader who finished the latest Scott Turow book on the beach and wants to read one of the older ones uh, immediately. Is Amazon not that reader's friend right now? It's a great question. It's a great question. Let's take the Scott, you take it. Just, just to go back to where I started, um, I, I will not say that Amazon does nothing good or that Amazon hasn't uh, contributed value to the reading world. Of, of course they have. The vast library, they've cut down the barriers to book buying. They've made things instantly available. Uh, it's, it, it's an enormous library of available material, and they're great for the person in the rural area. Uh, and I, I believe all of that. The problem is it's a binary world. They will not agree to 
anything but their model. They want to crush the publishers. They see no benefit in their existence. And I know that when that happens, the literary culture will be poorer in, as a result. They call it creative destruction. I call it cultural destruction. In the far corner there. So for the kind Could of... Could you tell us your name, please? Oh, hi, I'm Carrie. Um, so for books that are currently out of um, print, you know, that are still available from Amazon, just, you know, from other sellers who actually want to sell that book, you know, isn't Amazon the reader's friend for that reason? More reader's friend's reasons. There are a lot of them coming up. Uh, Frank Four, why don't you take that? Um, my sense is that the out-of-book, the out-of-print book market is something that the Internet more broadly does a good job of. So yes, they are the reader's friend in that sense, and so is eBay, and so are any number of sites. That happens to be uh, one part of the market where there's, um, there's, there's more competition because the barriers to entry are lower. I mean, and uh, I, I, I would... Can, can, can I add to this? I know that they, they get more time as a result. Yep. But uh, in 2008, Amazon bought a company called Book Surge, which provided print-on-demand services for small publishers, for often for out-of-print books. Uh, and Amazon immediately turned around to those small publishers and told them they would not have access any longer to the Amazon site unless they used Book Surge, which uh, at that time offered a more expensive product. And the publishers had to choose between doing any business at all uh, or standing up to Amazon. You know, something that connects, I think, the last two points that, that I saw recently is uh, the world of, of public domain books, you know, books that are, that are old and out of copyright. Uh, thanks to Amazon, you can go online, like, right now, and you can get the complete works of Jane Austen for free. Uh, that's pretty great for readers, it seems to me, and not something traditional publishers are interested in doing. You know, they're not, they're not making money that way. And it's just an example of the way in which a relentless desire to kind of serve this digital market, to serve consumers, to gain as big a share as possible, has really made Amazon a reader's friend by getting, you know, that, that long tail, including the books that are completely free, out there and into the hands of as many people who want And Joe Conrath, do you want to comment on that? No. Okay. Let's go to another question. Um, let's see. I'm sorry. Sir. Sweater and button-down shirt. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I meant the fellow in front of you, but you win by aggression. <laughs> I hate to reward it, but I'm going to. Thank you need you. a microphone? Oh, I didn't even know you were down there. <laughs> I'll let you go. In the interest of time, that was, that was a... See, that was aggressive and that was sneaky. I like that. He's the Amazon of the audience. Uh, so my name is Steven. I'm a full disclosure business student and textbooks are expensive. But getting to my real question, so there's plenty of other disruptive business models happening, whether it be in the music industry, with Spotify and the like. Um, but ultimately, the adaptability, I think, uh, ends up generating uh, more value for the user. So whether it be that Amazon be the uh, reader's friend, or the publishing houses be the reader's friend. I kind of wonder, in this unrest in the, in the book economy, what you guys uh, view as a projection of being value-added uh, for the reader. I'm going to pass on that question because I don't think it's going to help us vote on the motion, but thank you for the question. And uh, the, my original, you won through patience. 
My name is Eric. There's two questions quickly for Matt Iglesias. Just make one question, okay? One question Pick for one. Matt Iglesias. <laughs> <clears throat> um, the stock market values Amazon at a really high level, despite the fact that it's never made any money. And, of course, that's because the stock market, with the support of the management of the company, believes that they're going to change what they do and ultimately take advantage of the control of the individual markets that they dominate to raise prices and to do things that are more profitable for the company. So my question for you is, is it possible that you think that Amazon is a friend to readers today, but that five years from now or ten years from now, it won't any longer be friends to readers? Well, you know, the, this... The, the stock is actually down 25% over the past year. And, and Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, t- 25% is a lot, and that's during the context of a rising stock market. And I think that's happening because the investing community has begun to lose faith in this idea that this kind of cut prices to the bone, dominate everything, then jack the prices up. It's dawning on them that that doesn't really work, that you can build a successful business of low margins and, and high volume, and that, you know, there's some real value to that, but that this, like, monopoly doomsday scenario of theirs is not realistic, and it's not financially realistic. That's why you've seen share prices starting to go down. That's why you've seen investors backing new e-retail startups, because they see there isn't this kind of opportunity for monopolization that people fear. So your answer to the question, again, is that you just don't think it's a realistic scenario. Well, I mean, I I don't think it's true that the stock market even thinks it's a realistic Uh, scenario. But that wasn't the question. You don't think it's a realistic scenario? I don't, yes, and I think investors also do. You don't think Amazon's become more interested in a profit in the last year? Well, they've started to become interested, but this is the question. They raised the price of Prime 25%. Scott, I I understand that, but I'm saying this is the question, right, is do they have the ability to first secure a monopoly, then jack up prices and receive these huge rents, right? Wall Street feels that they don't have that opportunity, which is why their stock prices started to go down. Now, if you want to talk specifically about books and price increases, we should talk about the time the big five book publishers and Apple formed a cartel to fix prices and raise them. That's why e-book prices have gone up, which is separate from Prime and Amazon and, and all that other stuff. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is... Amazon is the reader's friend. Okay, remember, thanks very much for all the questions. It was, uh, they, were, they were great. Um, remember how you voted as soon as you hear the uh, closing statements, which will be very brief, or two minutes each, and ten or eight minutes from now we will be voting. Two minutes from that we get the response. On to round three, closing statements. They will be three minutes each. Our motion is Amazon is the reader's friend, and here to summarize his position supporting this motion, Joe Conrath. He's author of several dozen novels, including the Jack Daniels thriller series. <laughs> I have one fan. Thank you. So, so I, have, I have three minutes or two minutes? I'm, okay, two minutes. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, can I finish in two minutes? And I know my wife is watching this, and she's like, you always finish in two minutes. <laughs> I'm not going to... Hey, hey, you're wasting my time. I'm not going to sum up everything. I'm not going to use any more. I'm not going to introduce any new data. I'm not going to introduce any new facts. I'm not going to try to to sway over on the logic here. I'm going to say this one thing. I will bribe you if you change your vote to Amazon as a friend of readers. This is how I'm going to bribe you. I'm going to give you all of my e-books for free. And because I know Scott is such a fan of piracy, I am also going to give you all of his e-books <laughs> for free. And actually, of course, I'm kidding, but 
Underneath that, I'm kind of not kidding. I have the ability to, with Amazon, give away my books, put them on sale, lower the price, make them free. I've sold millions of books. I've given away millions of books. Amazon allows me to do that. Tell me that's not being a friend to a reader. And remember, please vote. Amazon is the reader's friend. Thank you. Thank you, Joe Conrad. And that's our motion. Amazon is the reader's friend. And here to summarize his position against this motion, Scott Turow, is former president of the Authors Guild and author of Presumed Innocent. Um, I'm probably dating myself, as I usually do, but long ago on Saturday Night Live, Garrett Morris played a, a character called uh, Chico Escuela. And, uh, Ch- and Chico used to say uh, regularly, baseball been very, very good to me. Uh, and the truth of the matter is Amazon has been very, very good to me. Uh, they have sold thousands and thousands of my books with their relentless discounting that has driven sales on which, when we talk about hardcover books, very nice for me because I get a full royalty on, on each of those sales. Uh, there was a time, as a matter of fact, that uh, Jeff Bezos even invited me to his little thought colloquia, The Campfires, and, until I remarked that they were the Darth Vader of the literary world uh, and, the, and the invitation ceased, ceased coming. Um, I, I do not judge things by on the basis of what's good for me. Uh, in point of fact, I spent 20 years trying to get my first novel published. I was Joe Conrath, and that experience never leaves me. Uh, and I am concerned about what is good for authors in general, not what's good for best-selling authors. Amazon wins. We all have to become entrepreneurs. The best-selling authors are the people who will prosper most in that series, in that situation, because it's an undifferentiated mass. People whose names are already known would be the winners. But I know, I know that the system we have now, yes, great, Joe, good. I really and truly am happy that you have found an audience. I want every every author to find an audience who deserves one. But the system that is perpetuated that is that of traditional publishers. And remember that, remember that these gentlemen do not deny that Amazon's ultimate goal is to, descri- to destroy traditional publishing, to force every author to become an entrepreneur, his own marketer, his own editor, and we will lose good writers in the process. Thank you, Scott Turow. The motion is Amazon is the reader's friend. And here summarizing his position supporting this motion, Matt Iglesias, executive editor of Vox.com. I, I think it's really important when you consider voting on this motion to really think about and listen to the arguments that our opponents have made. They've raised a, a lot of interesting ideas, but they're all they're these very complicated, very hypothetical ideas with a lot of red herrings and a lot of distractions from the core question here, which is, has Amazon been and is it now a friend to readers? And I think they haven't really disputed that it is, that Amazon has made books cheaper, that Amazon has made books more convenient, that Amazon is outcompeting the largest and richest technology companies in the world by offering a superior platform for shopping for books. Now, it is true that if many, many things that are not true became true at some hypothetical time through impossible mechanisms, Amazon might be an enemy to readers in that world. I, I studied philosophy in college, and this possible world stuff is it's fascinating. Um, and you can, thanks 
to Amazon, go buy David Lewis's book about the causal analysis of counterfactuals. You can get edited volumes that were written by his students, and you can you can really mull through this kind of stuff about these these complex things. Uh, but if there was no Amazon, it would be extremely difficult to find David Lewis's book or all those other books about the metaphysics of causality, hypotheticals, etc. Because you know, like. Brick-and-mortar bookstores have limited space. They don't want to carry that crap. Uh, you know, maybe right by a college campus they would, but, you know, in general, no. Amazon is the reader's friend. You can get all these books there, and that's pretty great. You know, do they want to take over the world? Sure, of course they do. And their nefarious plan for taking over the book world is to create the cheapest, best, and most convenient way to buy books. They're the reader's friend. That's how they got so big. That's why we're debating this. Other people with other interests have legitimate beefs with Amazon, but they got those beefs because Amazon is the reader's friend. Thanks, Matt Iglesias. And that's the motion. Amazon is the reader's friend. And here to summarize his position against this motion, Frank Four, former editor of The New Republic. We live in a fast-moving world. Um, disruption is our secular religion. And a lot of the things that get disrupted and are replaced with something good, a lot of things that get disrupted just disappear. And we as Americans are very optimistic. We kind of always assume that things are going to work out for the best. But here we're dealing with something very, very special and very, very important. And the economics of the book business, and therefore the substance of it, are about to change. It could be wonderful. It could be a dystopian hell. They have not answered two fundamental things. The first is that Amazon already is a monopoly. By any traditional standard, they are a monopoly. They control 67% of the ebook uh, market, 40% of the total book market. They are there. And that, it's one corporation with lots of power over our most precious things. And so you tonight have the opportunity to take a stand. I guarantee you Amazon is watching tonight. (laughs) But here's the thing. Your stand is cost-free in one regard. It's not going to bring in any government regulation. You're not going to put anybody out of business. But you have a chance to send a message to Amazon and say, look, be careful, guys. You're dealing with precious cargo. We're watching you. You have a lot of power right now. Your power is probably going to keep increasing. Don't abuse it. And so, you know, maybe you don't believe in the worst hypothetical scenarios that we, we, we've talked about here, but you care about the word, you care about the thought, you care about the underlying thing. And so be brave, take a stand, vote against this resolution, and be good stewards of word and thought. Thank you, Frank Four. And that concludes closing statements and round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And now it's time to learn which side has argued most persuasively. We're going to ask you to go again to the keypads at your seats and to vote a second time. And remember, it's the team whose numbers have changed the most in percentage point terms between the opening and the closing who will be declared our winner. If you agree with the motion that Amazon is the reader's friend, we're asking you to push button number one. If you disagree, push button number two. If you remain or became undecided, push number three.
Okay. While you're doing that, I would like to say this. It was very, very, it was really a fascinating thing to see four men of letters and lovers of books disagree so bitterly on something that's so personal to them and actually do it in a very respectful and civil way. I just want to ask for a round of applause for the way they did this. And I, I want to say to Frank Four, since, since you knew Amazon was watching, what you had to say up there was very, very brave and courageous of you. <laughs> and I, wanted, I want to say to Joe Conrath, after hearing the, the writer type described as sort of shy and introverted, I want to congratulate you on overcoming this <laughs> obstacle tonight and getting up on this stage. I also want to thank the people who have been supporting Intelligence Squared for the last several years, and particularly in the past year. The ticket sales do not in any way come close to covering the cost of putting on one of these debates, and we're counting on and have been counting on the support of a lot of people, but we need the support of many, many more. And I really mean it when I say the size of the contribution doesn't matter, but it would make a very, very big impact on our ability to continue doing these and to do more of them. If you go to our website, you have the opportunity to donate there, and it would be really, really something that we would really, really appreciate. Um, speaking of uh, keeping this going, our next debate is right here at the Kaufman Center. Um, on Wednesday, it's February 11th. It will be our 100th debate. Um, yeah, we started back in 2006, and we're hitting number 100 this year. Um, so we hope you can all come and celebrate it with us. Um, that debate is, is going to be focusing on sort of the, a very sort of big-picture look at the prospects for this nation. And the motion is going to be framed this way. Declinists be damned. Bet on America. Um, our debaters include a German publisher, a geopolitical strategist, a member of the Canadian Parliament, and a finance guru. Uh, we'll, we'll keep in, you in suspense on who's on whose side on that one. Um, but you can check it out on our website. And we're going to be looking through the rest of the season at this whole role of power. Um, our debates through this uh, rest of the uh, spring will be the right to be forgotten. We're going to be looking at presidential war powers. We're going to be looking at abolishing the death penalty. And finally, uh, on whether smart tech is making us dumb. For the full list of our debates uh, and to purchase tickets, you can go to our website. And I, I mentioned in the beginning, um, we have a terrific app that we launched this year. And when I say it's terrific, you can, you can see all of the debates that we've done, including this one, the 99th, and the next one coming up. You can hear them as well as, uh, as podcasts. You can vote. Uh, you can do research. You can find out who's gonna, who our panelists are. It's a very, very rich and deep app, and it's, uh, and it's mobile. So uh, we recommend that. And um, I think I've covered... All of that. The results are in now. We've had you vote twice on this motion. Amazon is the reader's friend, once before the debate and once again afterwards. And remember, the team whose numbers have changed the most in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. So let's look at what the preliminary uh, voting results were. The motion, Amazon is the reader's friend, before the, before the debate, 41% agreed with this motion, 28% were against, and 31% were undecided. Those are the first results. Now let's look at the second vote on this motion. Amazon is the reader's friend. The team arguing for the motion. Their second vote was 42%. They went from 41% to 42%. They picked up one percentage point. That's the number to beat. The team against the motion, first vote 28%, second vote 50%. They picked up 22 percentage points. The team arguing against the motion. Amazon is the reader's friend, has won this debate. Our congratulations to them. And thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time.